Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 24. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 24 is where we're going to be covering tonight. It says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the, re the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with, with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Now, last week we ended up on the breastplate of righteousness, and I want to just kind of pick up there because we were running out of time and I was talking 100 miles an hour, which will be slower than I'll be talking tonight. But uh, because we were going so fast at the end of the time that we had, I just walked out of here last night, not, or last week, not satisfied that I had communicated what I was trying to communicate to you. And so what I want to do is just kind of take you through a couple of scriptures to, to show you that when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, that righteousness is God's righteousness alone. It is totally His righteousness. All right? Our righteousness is as what, according to Isaiah? It's as filthy rags. When we put on the breastplate of righteousness, it is God's righteousness. Go to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 3, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier and sorry the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did anybody catch how many times when they talked about righteousness Paul was very clear to say God's righteousness, his righteousness, his righteousness so when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, it is God's righteousness that has been imputed to us. It has been given to us. Don't think that your righteousness is going to defeat the enemy. Your righteousness is not going to defeat the enemy. The only righteousness that he fears is the real righteousness, which only can come from God. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And look at verse 21. In 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when the Bible talks about putting on the armor of God and you're putting on righteousness, it can't be your righteousness that you're putting on. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the armor of God, would it? 
You're, you need to understand that you have been declared righteous by God. Now, have we always lived like we're righteous? No. And if Satan comes to attack you and say, well, look at how you're living. Maybe you're not righteous. What do you need to do? You need to show him the breastplate of righteousness that, no, I'm righteous, not because of me. And that's wonderful because of how I've just acted or what I've just said or how I've just been. You need to understand that to defeat the enemy's attacks, you need to understand you are righteous because of Jesus Christ. Now, with that said, we have to, at the same time, illustrate something that the scripture says very clearly all the way through, that actually, even though it's God's righteousness, and that's the only righteousness we have, how we ultimately live will show over time whether we have Jesus' righteousness or not. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't want you to think for a second that your righteousness is part of the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. It's not. But if we're going to be faithful to the whole of Scripture, the Bible says that just because someone says they have Christ's righteousness doesn't mean they have it. That actually the real evidence of the fact that you have been given the righteousness of Christ is the fact that over time it will become evident that you're not you anymore. And that there's been a change and that God is working this transformation to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you're going to be sinless. I'm not going to say that you'll be perfect. But there should be a progression in toward maturity. Well, let me give you what the scripture says. Let's just look at how the scripture says it. Go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 10. And look at what, what, what John is saying here to Christians. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But he, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see what he's saying here? In other words, if you really understand that you are the child of God and that when he comes, you're going to be, see him, see, see who he is and you're going to be like him. With that understanding, you are going to be living a holy life, hopefully. You'll hopefully be trying to be obedient to God. Again, I'm not saying that the Bible says you'll be perfect. And I'm going to show you in a second here. The same guy in chapter two says, I write these things so you won't sin. But if you do which he expects you will. We have someone who speaks on our behalf. But let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And this doesn't mean that you stop sinning at some point. It's just simply, are there certain areas of sin? If you can't ever say no to sin, you may not have the Spirit of God within you who gives you the power to say no to sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? So no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So look at what John's saying. He said, yes, we are children of God. But let me just say something to you, children of God. If you really are a child of God, it'll be evident in time 
that you won't live a life that continually is satisfied with sin. Let me ask you a question, those of you who might understand what I'm asking here. When you sin, how does it feel? That was a question. How does it feel? It feels awful, doesn't it? You don't lose your relationship with the Lord, but you grieve the Spirit, and you quench the Spirit, and the Spirit of God that lives within you, you know that was sin. And you just, you don't feel good. All what John is saying here is, if you're truly born again, you won't be happy sinning. You won't keep doing it because the Spirit of God lives in you and He won't let it happen. If you're happy with sin, and you can keep right on sinning and it doesn't bother you, and you can just say, well, I got the breastplate of righteousness, the Bible says you better check and make sure you really have Jesus in you. That's all we're talking about here. I don't want you to, for a second to think that when the breastplate of righteousness is tied to your obedience. It isn't. The breastplate of righteousness in this passage is all God's righteousness. Yet, over time, we'll know whether or not you really have his righteousness by whether or not you start working toward maturity and obedience to Christ. We'll go back to chapter 2 of 1 John and look at verses 1 through 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You want a good checkup as to whether or not you're really saved? Believe that God within you will give you victory over sin. If you believe that God within you will give you victory over sin, you will have victory over sin as you yield in faith to the Spirit of God within you. You will see a change. You'll notice that God actually, He convicts. He never condemns, but He convicts, and He actually starts giving you victory over sin. If you never, ever, ever get a victory over sin, you might want to check whether or not the Spirit of God is within you, because that's the only way you're going to have victory over sin. Are you happy in sin? Are you, do you think you're okay because it doesn't matter? I'm just covered by the blood. I can do whatever I want. The Bible says that over and over and over. Don't go down that road. The people that claim that don't have it. Yes, ma'am. And are you even recognizing your sin? Sometimes, a lot of times we don't. Uh, well, they don't. I guess would be a better way to put it. Because those of us who have the Spirit, we know when the Spirit shows us that that was sin. All right, so I just wanted to make sure we understood that the breastplate of righteousness is not tied to our righteousness. It's totally God's righteousness. Now, let's move on back in Ephesians to the next part of the armor. The third part of the armor is, that sh is uh, as we see here uh, in uh, verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. All right, let me say this to you again. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this is a tricky one, but before we even get into the tricky part of it, let me just remind you again that actually Paul is quoting again from Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, and look at verse 7. It says in Isaiah 52, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, 
who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Look at that. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news. Now, using this quote from Isaiah, Paul, again, describing the armor that we have of God, says that the next part of our armor is that shoes that represent the readiness of the gospel of peace. But now, there's a, there's a debate among Bible scholars as to what Paul's saying here. Some people are saying that what Paul's simply saying here, because the, the Greek's kind of hard to translate, he's saying that, that we need to put on the feet of the gospel, or the shoes of the gospel, and just stand firm in our salvation. And that's a possibility that that's all he's saying, because some people, the scholars will say, well, this is the armor of God, and therefore we need to just put on God's armor, and as our feet, we stand firm in the gospel. I'm saved, and I'm going to hang on to that. I lean toward that there's more to it than that, because in what you're about to see, I think the Bible and the helmet of salvation is where we're going to hang on to the fact that we're saved. But at the same time, there are some scholars that say, well, it, if it's going out and sharing the good news, the only offensive weapon in this whole armor is the sword of the spirit. Therefore, in order for the sword of the spirit to be the only offensive weapon, the shoes have to be a defensive thing where they're going to stand firm. And I would say to you folks, even though I myself have said it for years, that the only offensive weapon was the, spirit, the sword of the spirit, I'm going to say to you tonight two things. One, I don't know where we got that. I don't know where we got that the only offensive weapon was the sword of the Spirit. There's a possibility here that part of our offensive is to go share the good news. The readiness to share the gospel of peace. And I'm going to show you scripture that actually talks about that. At the same time, I can also show you, and we'll get to that in just a second with the sword of the Spirit, that the sword of the Spirit is not only offensive, but defensive. Have you ever seen guys fight with the sword? Sometimes they're just blocking blows with the sword. And we're going to see in a second, when Jesus dealt with the enemy, Satan attacked him. Jesus defended with the word. So we've over the years just had these things we say all the time, but never really checked them. That the only offensive weapon is the sword. Well, guess what? The Bible doesn't really say that. And so... The shoes of the gospel of peace to say that the reason why it's just simply a defensive standing firm in the gospel, because the other thing, that's, it's supposed to be all defensive except the sword, we're adding something that wasn't really there in the scriptures. All right? So I'm going to put it to you this way. Either way, the good news of the fact that we are at peace with God through faith in Jesus will be a blessing to us as we rest in this good news and share it. Instead of us having to figure out whether or not he's talking about standing firm in the gospel or just being active to share the good news. Why don't we just say it could be both and, and both are according to the scriptures, right? We don't gotta worry about whether or not who's right and who's wrong, yes ma'am. In Isaiah 7, it's obvious it's a, it's, it's a sharing. Happening. Yes, he's sharing the good news. Like I say, I lean toward more of the sharing of the good news than the standing firm. But what I'm gonna do real quick is take you to two scriptures that kind of illustrate both sides of this. Go to Romans chapter five. And look at verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, and look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Could it be that he's talking about shoes that stand firm in the gospel? Possibly. That's good. There's scripture that backs that up. But let me show you another one. Go to Philemon, verse 6. Philemon, verse 6. 
And once again, I, I set out a trap and nobody bit. Nobody yelled out, what chapter? That's good. That means you have read Philemon. There's only one chapter, just like, just like the, in the book of Jude. There's only one chapter. Philemon, verse 6. I'm, I've warned you before. That's right. Philemon, look at verse 6. Look at, what, look at what Paul says here. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I don't know if you caught this or not. It's in the sharing of our faith that we actually experience some of the other good things that we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me just put it to you this way. If you don't share your faith, if you don't tell others the good news, you are missing out on some of the aspects of the blessings of being in Christ. Plain and simple. I'm not one of these ones that says you all ought to be sharing your faith in the sense of, you know, make you feel guilt and beat down. And too many preachers over the years have said, if you don't tell them, they may never hear. That's a small view of God. Our God's going to get his stuff done whether I tell him or not, because he's way bigger than me and it ain't tied to me. In Acts chapter 17, it says he's not served by human hands if he needed anything. And Jesus himself said when they told him to tell his disciples to stop praising, he said, look, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. Balaam's donkey can talk if God needs to. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Don't, I'm not one of those preachers that says you better be sharing or else people won't hear. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're missing out. They're not missing out. They're going to hear. Even in Romans 10. Wait a minute, Jim. What about that section in Romans 10 where it says, how can they hear? And then someone preaches to them. Folks, keep reading your Bibles and stop building your theology on one verse. As you keep reading in that exact same section, he asks this question and he answers it. Did they not hear? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. Oh, you want to see even further evidence of the fact that God doesn't need you and me and he's going to get his word at everybody? He's already said in Romans 1 that everybody's without excuse because he's already revealed himself through creation. He says in Romans 2 that whether he's heard, they've heard his law or not, he's put his law in their hearts. And you get to the book of Revelation, there's going to be an angel that goes throughout the whole earth preaching the everlasting gospel to the whole world at the same time. So guess what? This is not me saying you better tell them or they may never hear. I'm saying you better tell them because you're going to miss out on some of the good things that we have in Christ. Well, let me read it to you again. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I still remember the first time I had ever been used by God to lead someone to Jesus Christ. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I had been youth pastor. Three different, uh, two, three different times, two different churches. And it wasn't until I was an associate pastor in New Orleans while I was in seminary that I actually was there when someone actually prayed to receive Christ. And I actually led them to trust Christ. And I still to this day remember the feeling that was just, wow, I actually got to be a part of that. I've heard about it. I've preached about it. I've taught about it. I actually got to experience it. Such a cool deal. Now, again, God had used me at other times in people's lives, but I had never actually been there at that time. And it, it's such a neat thing. Let me just tell you, there's something about it. I had the privilege last night. I was preaching at, last night at seat at the homeless shelter. And after all was said and done, even though I'd already given an invitation and, and challenged people to come down the aisle and trust Christ as their Savior, and nobody moved. The Spirit of God was working on this one guy named Rob, and he couldn't leave the sanctuary. And as people stayed and talked to me and everything, I could tell this guy was under conviction of some sort. I didn't know what about. And as he came forward, it started off with in his relationship with his wife and all this kind of stuff. But as we talked, it was obvious something else was going on. And that's when he finally blurted out, I need to be saved. Man, I love it those times. I don't even have to worry about whether or not I'm doing it right. Jim, where's the scripture where it also tells us to be 
It actually, it, it talks about being ready to give reason for the hope that lies within you. In, in the book of Peter, it talks about that. Yes, ma'am. Well, and it may not be that you're out there being an evangelist. You're just living your life. And at, yes, you're living your life. But the Bible does talk about the importance of actually by verbally sharing. Yes, exactly. And folks, let me just tell you, I think that this shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace is actually tied more to your sharing than just standing firm. And here's why. Go to number four, the fourth thing. That's part of the armor back here in Ephesians. It's the shield of faith. This faith is not speaking, by the way, of an adherence to a prescribed body of doctrine, such as the Baptist faith or the Methodist faith or whatever. It's referring to our saving faith in Christ and our personal relationship with him marked by confidence and trust. You know, we already seen earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. Well, I want you to see that. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Section we've already studied, but I'm going to remind you of it. In verse 4 of chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one what? One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, again, what he's talking about here, the shield of faith, it starts with our saving faith in Jesus Christ. But then it's more than that. It's also being able to trust God daily in this personal relationship with all the other attacks that come at us from Satan. He may attack you about whether or not you're saved. We'll talk about the helmet of salvation in just a sec. But he also, there's going to be lots of times that he's going to come at you to doubt and to question the love of God. And to worry or to wonder whether or not God's going to come through to you, to, for you. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how Satan was actually speaking through King Nebuchadnezzar. When, when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, is your God able to rescue you from this flame? You want to put See a perfect example of putting up the shield of faith? They said he's able. And whether he will or not, we don't know. And we ain't worried about it. Either way, we're good. We trust him. And you can defeat that way. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, so we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. All right, and then he goes on and talks about how we'd rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. But look at what he says, we, we walk by faith and not by sight. I don't know about you, but has God told you everything he's doing in your life right now? Has he given you all the answers to all the questions? No. Well, how do you know he really loves you? Faith. faith. Oh, but it's deeper than that. Remember, you've heard me talk to you about this before. Faith can't begin unless God's spoken. Anybody that says, well, I have faith. And then they say what their faith is. If it's not something God's already promised, it's not biblical faith. Real faith can only be put into responding by faith to what God has said. And so if you're going to be a man or a woman that lives by faith and not by sight, you have to know what God has promised. Well, I have faith that nothing bad will happen to me or my kids. Is that biblical faith? That's not biblical faith. In this life, you will have trouble. Exactly. There's no promise in the word that says you'll have no. I have faith that I'll never be sick. Does the Bible teach that? There are those who try to teach you that faith begins with you. It doesn't begin with you. You only can put faith in what God has said. Does God heal? Yes. Does he choose to at times? Yes. And other times? No. Yes. We have to have faith in God. And that means he gets to choose however he wants to do it. And I'm not going anywhere. And when Satan comes to try to attack you to make you doubt or to worry or fear, that's when you throw up. Well, the, I love the picture of the flaming darts. You know where they're coming from when they're flaming, don't you? 
They started somewhere warm and hot. But actually back in that day, they actually would dip their arrows in tar and then light them on fire and then shoot them. And the shields were such, and by the way, we always kind of picture Captain America's little round shield. These shields actually went from head to foot almost. And they actually were made in such a way that when the darts hit them, it extinguished them. Yes, sir. They were covered with leather. Yep. It was soaked. And it was soaked. And it extinguished them at that moment when it got hit. Guys, you need to understand the promises of God. And you need to know what he said. And you need the whole of scripture so that when Satan comes at you to make you worry or doubt or fear, you can honestly just say, no, God's word says. It is written. Well, that's where we're going to go next. Let's look at the helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation. Fifth part of the armor. It says in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. And then we're going to stop and we'll get to the sword of the spirit in a second. We're going to take the helmet of salvation. By the way, as I was doing this study, this is something that God opened my eyes to. First of all, this is another quote from Isaiah. I don't know if you all know this or not. And, but, and we're not going to turn there. But in Isaiah 59, verse 17, it, it talks about God coming and wearing a helmet of salvation. In Isaiah, the Messiah wears salvation as a helmet. But in Ephesians, we wear the helmet of salvation to protect us from Satan's attacks. But this is another one of the many passages that show that we're eternally secure. Can anybody tell me how this passage right here gives evidence to the fact that you're eternally secure if you've been truly saved by God and received His Spirit. How can you tell from this passage? And if you don't know, that's okay, but can anybody tell me, tell me why? It may be a little bit hard for you to see, but once you see it, it becomes clear. I'm sorry? You're definitely sealed by the Spirit, but we're talking about the helmet of salvation. Whose armor is this? This is God's armor. All right, this isn't your armor. Are you holding on to your salvation or is he holding on to your salvation? When you put on the armor of God and especially the part of the armor that's the helmet of salvation, whose helmet are you putting on? It's his. It isn't you. It's him. Let me remind you in 2 Corinthians, I want you to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 21, sorry, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 21 and 22. Look at verse 21. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I want you to see this. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Who's holding on to your salvation according to this passage? Who establishes you in Christ? God. You're putting on the helmet of salvation. It's God's helmet of salvation. Satan, talk to him. Talk to him. Let me show you another one. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 5. I love this part. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And listen, and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Folks, going to get any more clear? 
Is your salvation tied to how good you've been or whether you're going to walk out? No. If you're truly in Christ, God does something where he seals you by his spirit. Your salvation is now being kept in heaven for you. And oh, by the way, this salvation is imperishable. It doesn't fade. It ain't going anywhere because God's the one who's holding on to you. Thank God. When I finally, it, let me tell you my story. And this might help some of you because, you know, Satan has probably come in all of our lives to try to make us doubt our salvation. That's a very common thing for most Christians. And let me say this to you this way. I've come to realize over the years from dealing with people who have had this issue and who have wrestled with it and those who have come to realize they weren't saved, there is a big difference between doubting whether or not you're saved and knowing you're lost. If your issue is doubting your salvation, questioning your salvation, God is not talking. Because when God is talking, he's not going to have you doubt your salvation or question your salvation. He's going to tell you you're lost. And from dealing with people who weren't saved, who needed to be saved, who claimed Christianity but didn't have it, the, every single one of them said there's a big difference between doubting you're saved and knowing you're lost. If you're sitting here just doubting whether or not you're saved, the, I'm going to tell you I'm going to shoot low. 98% of the time, chances are it's just the enemy trying to mess with you. And I actually went through it myself. That same church where I told you about in New Orleans where I was associate pastor and I'm actually going to be there on Monday. We had this evangelist come to town and his whole MO, his whole way of trying to get people to walk the aisle was to tell story after story after story about this deacon who had been a deacon for so many years and then he got saved. And this pastor who had been a pastor for so many years. And he kept telling stories and stories and stories. And let me just tell you, after a while, one of these stories is going to match up with your life. Well, to the point he had all of us questioning whether or not we were really even saved. <laughs> Including me. Yet the invitation time comes and I'm one of eight pastors on staff and I'm supposed to be down at the front of this big auditorium dealing with people who are flocking to the altar to be saved. Christians saying, I need to be saved. I'm not saved. And all this stuff. The whole time I'm dealing with these people, I'm sitting there thinking because I'm under the Satan's attack. I probably shouldn't even be doing this. I'm probably not saved myself. And I'm wondering, because Satan had been messing with me so much. Finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And I asked one of the other pastors to take my aisle. And I said, I just need to go to the altar. And I literally, I went and I knelt at the altar. And this is what I prayed. I said, God, if I'm really not saved, I am willing right now to stand up in front of this whole church and say that I'm not saved. But I really need to know that it's you talking. Would you please have someone put their hand on my shoulder and say these words? It wasn't two seconds later that someone put their hand on my shoulder and I about wet myself. <laughs> but they didn't say those words. They said, hey, Beth Capel wants to be baptized right now. Would you baptize it? This is actually one of my best friends. He was in the church at the time and his wife and my wife were best friends. And I was like, Oh, whew, thank the Lord. It wasn't the other words that I had just told him to say. And so I was like, uh, sure, okay, yeah. And we had water in the baptistry. And I ran up, and, and one of the deacons is helping me put the waiters on. And the whole time I'm putting my legs in the waiters, I probably shouldn't even be doing this. I'm probably not even saved myself and all this kind of stuff. I baptized her. Instead of enjoying this moment, I didn't. Service is all over. I go into the senior pastor's office, and he literally wants to just literally strangle this evangelist because of the, dam the damage that he had been doing in our church. He said, that guy has got most of our best Christians wondering if they're even saved. And I said, well, he's got me wondering too. He said, Jim, have you ever been to the hospital visit someone who has cancer? And I said, yeah, you make me. It's part of my job. 
He said, let me ask you a question. He said, just say you go down the hall and you talk to this person that's got cancer and you say, hey, how did you first find out you had cancer? And they say, well, it started with a headache and then boom, boom, boom. And he goes, you go down the hall and you see someone else and you say, hey, how did you first hear you find out you had cancer? And they say, well, you know, it started with a headache. He said, after a while, what do you think you're going to think the next time you get a headache? He said, all this guy has done is use stories. And in time, one of these stories is going to hit everybody. And he's now going to use the story. He said, God uses his word to convict us. He speaks through his word. You don't even have to have a man to make you wonder or question. And folks, I needed to put on the helmet of salvation. And for the next week, actually, by God's grace, I have, didn't have to work. I actually had to go to Lake Charles, and I actually was going to paint a house for somebody. And I was in this house painting and listening to Christian preachers on the radio. And Charles Stanley came on. And he was preaching about how 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about verse 14. The man without the spirit does not understand the things of the spirit because they're foolishness to him because they're spiritually discerned. And he says, if you understand things of the spirit as you read the word of God, that's an evidence of your salvation and the spirit's in you. And I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. And buddy, I put the helmet on that day. I have put it on that day and I cinched it tight. And Satan can't mess with me there anymore. You're doubting your salvation. You need to get it settled and put the helmet on tight so Satan can't attack you there anymore. But there's a big difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. And you don't need man to help you find out if you're lost. God can take care of that all by himself. Let's go to the sword of the spirit. I am so glad that Paul clarified that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Because listen to how it reads here. It says in verse uh, 17, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Thank God he clarified that. Because otherwise we'd think that the sword was the Spirit. No, the Spirit supplies the sword. But the sword is the word of God. Now, as you've already heard me say before, yes, it's an offensive weapon in the battle, but it's also defensive. And as you go back, and we're not going to take the time to do that, if you go back to Matthew 4 and you see Jesus didn't go after Satan with the sword. When Satan came at him, he used the sword to deflect his attacks. And I think that's very important for us because too many Christians have been taught to go storm the gates of hell. Doesn't Jesus say, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Did you catch the direction here? We're not storming the gates of hell. The gates of hell have no effect on us. And for too long, we've been taught to go fight Satan. Do you not understand that God is far more powerful than Satan? And Satan is far more powerful than you? And actually, in the book of Jude, you'll see that the angel, Mike, Archangel Michael, didn't even dare bring accusation against Satan, but said what? The Lord rebuke you when they were fighting over the body of Moses. We need to understand that actually all the way through Scripture, the Bible says, resist the devil. Submit yourself first, therefore, to God. Resist him and he will flee. I actually think for years we've been talking about how this was the offensive weapon. It may be defensive. It may be just part of the armor to protect you against his attacks. Oh, yes, it, is, it has the ability to cut. But we just need to know what it says so that when he comes, we can have something to stand up with. Well, this leads perfectly to where we're going. Because in the next verse, 
He says in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And I don't want you to miss this. I don't believe the praying in the spirit is a part of the armor. But I think it's very intricately tied together here. Because in the context, he's just said, you need to have the belt of truth. Remember the truth? Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He's the only one. There's no other way to the Father except through him. It all is grounded in Jesus Christ. You're also to have what? The breastplate of righteousness, which is the righteousness that has been given us by God. And we're also to have the feet ready to share the good news and the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the helmet of salvation. And he says, but actually... How do we put this on? How do we put this on? It's prayer. And I want you to stick with me, though, because too many of us hear the word prayer and we think asking God for things. Look closely again what Paul says here. He says, praying all at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. By the way, some people try to tell you that this is speaking in tongues. There are those out there that teach this, that they say this is evidence that this is where you can speak in tongues because it's praying in the spirit. And that's what. No, no. It says praying at all times in the spirit. If it were tongues like they try to make it to be. Is that what it's teaching? That we're doing that all the time? That's not what the Bible's teaching. Praying in the spirit is actually being under the leadership of the spirit as we talk to God. Actually, well, let me show you. Go to Romans chapter eight. Look at Romans chapter 8, in verses 26 through 28. It says, the light, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't even know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Look closely here. As you've heard me teach on this before, this is in the full context here tied to the fact that he's just said that the Spirit of God knows things we don't know. And also in the same time, the Spirit of God is praying for us about things that are going to happen before we even know what they are. Well, doesn't Jesus say to Peter, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. Did Peter think he needed prayer? No, no Peter says, I don't need prayer. But Jesus was already praying for him according to the will of God, before Peter even knew what he needed to be praying about. Jesus on the cross cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's praying to the Father on behalf of all those people. Did they think they needed forgiveness? Were they asking for it? No. They were mocking him. They were making fun of him. Yet here was God praying for them in line with the will of God for them before they even knew. John 17, he does, he prayed for us even before we were born. The ones who are going to believe after. Here, the Spirit of God, who is God, helps us when we don't even know what to pray for because he knows what God is trying to do. He knows what's happening. He knows what God's will is. That's why in 1 John chapter 5, he says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we ask him and if we know that he, he hears us, we will have the things we ask. Well, how in the world are you going to know what God's will is? You're going to know what the Spirit knows. And the Spirit of God within you will lead you in your praying. You have to learn to recognize when the Spirit of God is prompting you in your prayers. Most of us have just thought prayer life was, oh, i got to ask God for this. 
There's, that's a part of it, but it's way more. And I'm about to show you some other aspects of it. But I want you to, has anybody ever had God put somebody on your heart and on your mind out of the blue and you hadn't even thought about them for years even at times? And then all of a sudden, boom, he put something, someone on your heart. First and foremost, you go right to the Father because that is the Spirit leading you to pray. Sometimes he'll even lead you to make a phone call. I was preaching in Jacksonville Sunday. And the pastor of the church in Jacksonville, as he introduced me, said this. He said, God has used Jim. I've known him for 25 plus years, but he's used him in my life at times when I'm having a pity party or I'm feeling really low or I'm under the Satan's attacks. Out of the blue, I'll get a phone call from Jim saying, God put you on my heart and I'm praying for you right now. What's going on? And he looked at me in tears and he said, you have no idea how that has kept me in the ministry. I don't get any credit for it. I don't have a list of people that I pray for. But when the Spirit of God I've learned, when he puts someone on my heart, I know he wants me to talk to the Father for, about that person. And sometimes he wants me to give them a call. This will begin to teach you how to pray in the Spirit. Sometimes he will actually lead you to pray things as you're praying. He will lead your praying. I was praying with this one pastor and his wife and they have a, an only child and she's just uh, given, uh, about to give birth to a baby this May. And while I was in their house praying for them because they had some issues themselves, he has cancer. And he's praying that he lives in time, till time to see the baby born. As I was sitting with them and praying with them, the Spirit of God led me to pray that their grandbaby would be able to move to a place that they would either move or their grandbaby would move where they could be close to each other. I don't even know where that came from. I just felt like God told me. So I prayed that when we finished. She said, who told you? I said, I don't know what you mean. Who told me what? She said, you didn't hear? I was like, no. She goes, there's a chance that our grandbaby, right after it's born, may have to move to Alaska or Hawaii, and it's killing us. And you prayed that the baby would be close. Thank you. I said, I don't know what God's plan is, but I really felt like out of the blue that God was telling me to pray along that line. Folks, you will learn how to do this as you, we go with our list. There's nothing wrong with bringing to him your requests. But I want you to also see that prayer is far more than just going and having your quiet time with God. Because he, what does he say? Look at it again, how he says this here. He says, praying at what? All times. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 12 says, pray without ceasing. Therefore, this type of prayer, this type of communication with God can't be just, I need to go pray. Amen. Nothing would ever get done. We'd never eat. You know what I'm saying? Or people would never move when the light turns green because they were praying when it was red and now it's green, you know. And we need to understand something about what he's talking about here because prayer is far more than bringing to God our requests. Actually, I've come to realize Prayer is a continual communication with the Father where you are listening and sometimes you're just thanking Him. Sometimes you're just praising Him, but it's, a, it's an awareness of His presence at all times. It's not, I need to go be with God. It is, well, as Brother Lawrence put it, practicing the presence of God. If He's always with us, He's not more with me when I get in my prayer closet. There are times when we need to go get in the prayer closet, and the Bible teaches that, but you can't live in the prayer closet. 
But when you learn to practice the presence of God and understand, and folks, let me just tell you, that's how I have begun to really start to preach and to teach. I jokingly say, I don't know what I'm preaching on this coming Sunday night, but it's true. But I'm not worried about it because I have learned that God will show me. And sometimes he'll show me as I'm preaching. Oh, I have some notes here. But we would have finished Ephesians a long time ago if I stayed with the notes. <laughs> but it's those times that I get away from the notes sometimes that God really starts to move. Let me show you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Go to Matthew chapter 11. As God began to talk to me about praying at all times with all kinds of prayers, he started to show me that when you look at Jesus' prayer life, <clears throat> it's kind of neat. Look at Matthew 11 verses 25 and 26. And Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Did you catch what he just did? He prayed out loud. Father, I thank you that you've hidden it from the people that think they know it all. And that you've given your truth to those who are going to come to you as children in faith. That was your plan all along. It's a good one. I play golf a lot, some of you know, and I love it. But this one guy I play with, he always makes fun of me. He says, Jim, inevitably, at least one time during the round, you will make the statement, thank you, God, that I get to play in Florida and live down here. He says, we get it. I'm like, no, you don't get it if you think you're going to ask me to stop. <laughs> because I have come to realize that every time I'm outdoors in this beautiful weather, I played this afternoon between preaching at noon at Men in Motion and coming here, and I have had a chance to get a shower between I actually got to hang out with a pastor and walk 18 holes at Melbourne and two or three times I couldn't help it because it was beautiful out there today. I said out loud so everybody could hear, God, thank you for letting me live here in Florida. Thank you that I get to play golf and I get to do ministry at the same time. I love my life. Thank you so much. That's prayer. Let me show you another one. Go to Matthew, uh, sorry, John chapter 11. Look at verses 41 and 42. John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42. <clears throat> so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. He prayed and preached at the same time. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Folks, let me just tell you, this is what he's talking about. How do you put on the armor? You live in a continual acknowledgement of the presence of God. You talk to him and you listen to him at all times. And guess what? Jesus already said in John chapter 16, when the spirit of God, well, we go to verse 12. He said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will remind you of things that I've said to you. He'll guide you into all truth. Folks, the spirit of God, God himself lives within you. And he, if you practice his presence, understanding that he's there, Talk to him at all times. Thank him. Praise him. You know, worship songs and just singing to him is a part of prayer. Just living in that understanding of him. Guess what? As you do that, it's really hard for Satan to come at you. Because you're walking with Jesus. Yeah, you won't easily be stressed at all. Paul ends his letter, go back to Ephesians here. 
He ends his letter knowing that many would want to know more about how he himself is doing. And as you remember, we read this already. He says in verse 21, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Now, there's a couple of things. Let me just pull out from here real quick. He calls him a helpful or a faithful minister. In the Greek, it could be translated a, a helpful servant. The, the word is, the translated minister is actually di diakonos. And I think that might hurt us a little bit because it's a good word if we understood what the word meant. Because if you were to go to most churches today and walk in and say, hey, could you point out your ministers? Who would they point out? The pastors. They would say, well, there's the minister of music, there's the minister of youth, and we don't get it. Because those of us who have been called to be equippers and overseers and spiritual leaders in the church through the preaching and the teaching of the word, as you already know from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, some are apostles and some are prophets and some are evangelists and some are pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. ministry. The ministers actually in the church are y'all. You're the ones who are supposed to be doing the work of the ministry. We're supposed to be equipping you to do the work of the ministry. If we're good, we'll do it alongside of you as well. We won't just tell you to do it and not do it ourselves. Yet, the ones who are supposed to be doing the work of the ministry, the faithful ministers are the Tychicuses. Try to say that five times fast. <laughs> but listen, he said he is, he's, a, he's a big help and he'll, he will come and he'll not only tell you how we're doing, he'll encourage you. He'll encourage you. By the way, Ken, I was talking with a man last night, and I'll talk to you afterwards about this, but I recommended you as a faithful minister for a place that I'd like to see if it is God's plan, and I want to see you afterwards. But you are one of those guys, and I want, I, 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 someone will be chasing you down, and I want to give you a heads up because I already gave him your name. <laughs> Folks, let me just tell you, praise God for those who care for pastors. Did you catch what he says here? He, some of you are going to want to know how I'm doing. Have any of you even thought, I wonder how our pastor's doing? Oh, you probably thought about things that you wish he had done or things he shouldn't have done that way. I'm not talking about that. How many of you have ever wondered, I wonder how our pastor is doing? I wonder how... His family is. I'll praise God. I'll, I'll say it right now and it'll be recorded. First Baptist Merritt Island, where I go, just gave the senior pastor and his family year-long passes to Disney World. That ain't cheap. But the church bought them passes because he's got a wife and three young children. And they said, we want you to spend time with your family. What a gift. What a gift. May you be, if that's a call of God on your life, one who's looking after pastors. And some of you do that with us, and I thank you for that as well. But just keep that in your mind. Then as we wrap up, look at what he says in verses 23 in closing. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That's everybody that's truly saved. That's everybody that's really in Christ. He just says to you, I want you to experience peace, love that comes from your faith, and God's grace. In other words, have you ever noticed how pretty much Paul doesn't say how many you're running? 
Anybody ever caught that? When he sends a letter to a church, he doesn't say, how many of you guys running on Sunday? How are your numbers? What's your membership? How hard are you working? How full is your sanctuary? You notice he didn't say that. What does he say at the beginning of his letters and also a lot of times at the end? Grace and peace to you. In other words, let me paraphrase it for you. Would you relax? Would you relax? Would you experience all that God has for us by believing that he's for you and he doesn't need your help? That you don't got to bust your fanny to go serve God and just do what he's called you to do and don't do the things he hasn't called you to do. And don't let man determine what it is you're supposed to be doing, but let the Lord Jesus do. And you'll find his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And you will enjoy this relationship we have with Jesus Christ. And folks, I want you to have peace. I want you to have love and grace. And it comes from faith in Jesus Christ. For too long, we have had preachers tell us it's up to you. It isn't up to you. It's already been done and being done by Jesus. And all you need to do is know what he said and know what he's promised. Rest in that and enjoy the journey. Some of you have heard me tell this story and I'll wrap up with this. I had a great grandmother who lived to be 102. Anybody here got Swedish background? Anybody here Swedish at all in your background? All right, well, you will understand this. In the Swedish culture, if it's your father's mother, you'll call them far more. If it's your mother's mother, you call them more, more. This was actually my mother's father's mother, so we should have called her more, far more. But we just <laughs> called, we called her far more. She never flew on an airplane until she was in her 80s. She was scared to death of flying. And, at, and finally, at 80-something years old, she finally had to get on an airplane for a two-hour flight. And she was petrified. She was convinced that this thing could not stay in the air and that she also believed that if she put her full weight down, the plane was going to crash. This is back in the time before 9-11 when you could actually go to the gate and greet people when they got off. And when Farmore came off the plane, everybody went up to hug her because she was a frail little lady and they said, how was the flight? And she leaned in and she whispered, I didn't let my weight down the entire time. They were saying, what? And come to realize what she did was she took the armrest and she held her bottom off the seat for the whole two-hour flight because she was afraid that if she put her full weight down, even though it already was, if she put her full weight down, the plane was going to crash. She got to her destination, but she didn't enjoy the flight. What is Paul saying? Let your full weight down in Jesus and you'll enjoy the ride. Peace, grace, love, which comes through your faith in Jesus Christ. Guys, ladies, until we get back together again, put your weight down in Jesus. And when we get back together, he'll encourage us even more in the book of Philippians. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this chance to study your word. And Lord, I, I, I thank you for the fact that I can see on the faces people who are being encouraged by your truth. And Lord, I've already seen over the, the weeks and months and sometimes years that we've been together studying your word, the growth that's been happening, not only in their lives, but also in mine. I thank you for what you're doing. Lord, thank you that you're moving us into the freedom that you talk about in your word and away from legalism, away from the law and into trusting and then watching you do things that we've been trying to do on our own for years. Father, Bring us back, ready to go, and to be encouraged. Well, as we're going to get to in Philippians, 
And you start talking to us even more about rejoicing always and not being anxious for anything. There's some amazing things that we can't wait to get in and allow your spirit to take us deeper. Lord, put us in that book, reading it ahead of time to get ready for the things you're going to show us. And keep us under your control. I was going to say keep us safe. Well, you're going to keep us safe from the evil when that's going to happen. But may we be in your arms between now and then and we get back with a smile of peace and joy and grace on our faces because of the fact that you have been good. You always are. We just finally got to believe it and experience it. We pray this in your name. Amen.